Good morning. My name is Joe. I'm the pastoral intern here at Celebration. It's good to be with you this morning. As we begin, I want to get into a little bit of my history, take you back just a little bit over a year. Um, Let me get to the slide. It'll get there. Um, The date is September 24th, 2014. I'm not sure if it's up there yet, but you can imagine with me. It'll be up there in a second. Anyway, September 24th, 2014. My wife Kaylee and I were in the hospital. She was on the bed. I was in the chair next to her. It was early in the morning or late at night, whichever one you want to take there. It was about 3 in the morning. And we had been waiting a long time. There was a lot of waiting and sitting and looking forward. It had been a really busy day, a really busy 24 hours between tests and procedures and questions and prayers and people visiting us. I was sitting there in the chair and Kaylee was getting some rest. It's hard to sleep when you're at the hospital because every 20 minutes it seems like they come in and ask you questions or see if you're okay. And you're like, I'm okay, just let me sleep. Just let me go back to sleep. Um, but I was getting a little bit of sleep and Kaylee was asleep as well next to me. And I can remember falling asleep thinking about all of the last nine months. I was thinking about our fears, our worries, how we were going to pay for this new life change how we were going to afford it, where I was going to work, how Kaylee was going to handle things, how we would make money when she was off of work for a while. And there were all these fears and worries and really confusion and chaos running around in my mind. And then I started thinking about how excited we were. We were looking forward to this for the last nine months. We were so excited. There were so many expectations, so many hopes, so many dreams. Some things we'd have to put aside for a little bit. But there were these bigger dreams that we were really excited about. We couldn't wait to finally put a face with the name Nora. I was sitting there in the chair thinking all these thoughts, thinking back to how exciting this was going to be. A few hours later after that, um, Nora was born. And this picture, let me get there real quick. All right, the picture that Connor's about to put up (laughs) happened shortly after that. This is Nora. We should have known that that fist was foreshadowing. She punches us all the time. Um, but this was just a few short moments after she was freshly birthed. And we were so excited. We, were, we finally saw her. I got to see her before Kaylee did, which I kind of hold over her head sometimes. But Nora loves Kaylee way more than she loves me. So we're even there a little bit. Um, but this is Nora. And we were so excited to finally meet her and call her Nora, name her Nora, and just hold her in our arms. It was a really exciting time. Because of the awkward time in the morning that she was born, it was around 4, 5 in the morning. We had to stay an extra day in the hospital because of hospital procedures and policies. So after things kind of settled down a little bit, after um, Kaylee's parents were there, some friends showed up and said hi, and she was finally getting some rest, I ran back to our apartment to get some necessary supplies for an extra day in the hospital. And I remember walking into our apartment and looking at things with brand new, fresh eyes like a completely different perspective that I couldn't even imagine before. All those fears, hopes, worries, expectations, dreams, excitement was kind of all coming together as I walked to her apartment. I didn't even have Nora with me yet, but I could see how things were going to change. See cords that she would trip on. See picture frames that she would knock over. I walked into our bathroom and saw cabinets that needed to be tied together. I walked into her room, and I stood there, and I thought, man, Nora is going to sleep in here. This is her room. And all of those emotions and thoughts kind of flooded over me, 
And I realized that having Nora changed everything. It changed every single part of our lives. Not always in huge ways, but there were little adjustments because it's not really just about us anymore. It wasn't just about Kaylee and I doing what we wanted to. All of our life, all of our schedules kind of adjusted around this person that was completely dependent upon us. She really changed everything. So today we're in the third week of the Advent season. We're kind of in the final push towards Christmas. I don't think that was a pun. I'm not really sure, but I don't know. I'm not sure. But we're in that final stage looking towards Christmas. There's all these expectations behind us, all the fear behind us. And finally, we're getting to peace, kind of some ease there a little bit, some relief. And we've been looking at the Christmas story. We're not there yet. We're still a week away from that. But we've been looking at the Christmas story through different perspectives, through different stories in Scripture. Today, we're going to look at another one. But first, I want to talk about peace a little bit. A lot of times in our culture, we think of different things around the word peace. It's really all over our culture as well. I was practicing my sermon and running through it in my mind as I walked to work yesterday. And as I was walking, I even said the word peace out loud. And I looked and there was peace spray painted on a sidewalk, like just right there. And I was like, man, we're longing for peace. Our culture is longing for that. We kind of see peace as an absence of conflict or a calm or a relief. Kind of this, this comfort, this security, absence of conflict. And that's how we think of peace. And I think those things are inside of the word peace. Those are all in there. And those are all real feelings and all real longings that we have. But I wonder if peace is something a little bit more than that. Peace, as far as we and God are concerned, is something a little bit more than that. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. The page number in your pew Bibles, if you have one, is page 715. And I want to introduce you to a couple of main characters in this story. This is the chapter immediately before Jesus is born. So we are right there. We are really close to the story of Jesus. A couple of characters I have to introduce to you today are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we have that connection there. We can feel that we're really close, pulling us closer and closer to the Jesus birth story. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are still a little bit a ways off. Zechariah was a priest, probably of the tribe of Levi. We're not all the way sure there. But he was a priest, and his main job, his main role as a priest was to mediate between the people and God. He was like the middleman. He would go on behalf of the people, stand before God, and make offerings, make sacrifices. He would really represent the people of Israel to God. God was invisible, right? He was, he was this holy deity that no one could really stand before. But if you were of the tribe of Levi or if you were um, appointed in a different way, you were a priest and you would stand on behalf of the entire people before God. And this is what Zechariah's role was. That was really his identity, too. It was all wrapped up in the inner workings of what it meant to be Jewish. He was really deeply rooted in the tradition of what it meant to be an Israelite. So that's Zechariah. Elizabeth, his wife, we're told, is of the line of Aaron. Now, Aaron, 
deep, deep, deep way back in Old Testament history is the brother of Moses. Moses is this charismatic, um, really strong, powerful leader in the Old Testament. And people always thought of Moses as really the ideal leader of the Israelite people. He led them out of Egypt. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He really led them through the wilderness. And Aaron was kind of his right-hand man. He was his brother as well. And he was really second in command there. So Aaron is a really important idea and a really important ancestor to have. And, the, and Luke, the author of this book, points that out to us, that Elizabeth is of that line of Aaron. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth both deeply rooted in the traditions of the Israelite people. They're deeply connected historically, traditionally. Their family lines were connected to it. And their roles really functioned as part of what it meant to be Jewish. This is huge to understand when we get to a passage like this. It's really important to understand that these two people weren't just your everyday Israelites. They had roles and responsibilities and a lot of expectations behind them as far as their family and ancestry goes. So let's get that in mind as we go into this story a little bit. I'm going to tell it to you because it's really long and it's a lot of verses. So it's a little bit more fun to act it out dramatically too. Not like interpretive dance wise. But it's a little bit more fun to, to act it out. So Zechariah one day is on, on the job. He's in the temple. And he's chosen to go before the Lord and burn incense. And incense is important because it's a piece of material, real thing that they could see. They light it and burn it as an offering. And as the smoke goes up, it kind of takes the physical incense and turns it into like the spiritual. You can even kind of think of that, like dissipating into the air. They couldn't see God and they imagined him as a spiritual being. So the smoke taking something physical and turning into the air symbolized that letting go of physicalness and giving it up to God in a spiritual offering. And also, going up is important because all of the good things come from above. Rain comes from above. Sunlight comes from above. These things that were really important to live, to survive as a person, come from above. And so that's where they believe God to, God to be. So the smoke going up to God is letting go of this physical offering, letting it become spiritual and giving it up. To God. So Zechariah goes in to the innermost part of the temple, burns this incense, and while he's in there, an angel appears to him. Pretty normal thing, right? We talk about it a lot. It happens a lot throughout Scripture, but it's not really that normal of a thing. So an angel appears to Zechariah, and he's obviously freaked out. I would be too, especially if you're just going in to burn some incense, and all of a sudden there's an angel there. What's going on here? And the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And you're like, okay, yeah, okay, you're an angel. I don't know what you want me to not be afraid for. You're an angel. I'm terrified. And the angel says, don't be afraid, but you and your wife are going to have a son. You're to name him John, and he's going to call people back to God and point to the salvation of Israel. Whoa, that's a lot to take in. Especially because Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, and they haven't ever been able to have children. They've probably already worked through this in their minds because not being able to have children kind of ends your line there. That ends your family legacy. If you can't have children to pass on your legacy to, it's kind of a hard thing to get through. But since they're older, they've probably worked through that a little bit, and they're fulfilling their duties and getting on with their lives. But then suddenly an angel comes to you and says, actually, you are going to have a son. It's going to be really important to this son. And so Zechariah just kind of probably out of reaction says, 
But how can that be? We're old and we can't have children. That's a really reasonable response. That's probably something I would say too, especially if an angel showed up. Not normal. But the angel says, well, because of your disbelief, you're not going to be able to talk until the baby's born. Okay, not that big of a deal. This is a, a classic Bible thing to happen. Can't talk for some reason. But putting myself in, in the shoes of someone whose wife is pregnant, I can't imagine not being able to talk for nine months. There were times when I shouldn't have talked. <laughs> and I know that all too well. But I can't imagine not being able to talk for the entire pregnancy, not being able to share those fears those worries, those hopes, those dreams, those expectations, not even being able to talk about them. I can't even imagine what Zachariah is feeling. He probably kept thinking in his mind, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said, okay, yeah, I'm excited. Okay, yeah, I'm excited. But instead I had to say, how can this be? Come on. I can imagine he's like so confused he can't even tell his wife what happened in the temple. It's a really strange situation. But time passes like it does, and the pregnancy went on like it does. And nine months later, Elizabeth has a son. Zechariah still can't talk, though, so he's kind of like, what is going on? Why can't I talk? After eight days, they take the baby to the temple to do some Jewish customs, as is part of Jewish tradition. They haven't named the baby yet, which is weird, because we named Nora eight months before she was even born. But they hadn't named him yet. They took him to the temple um, to name him, to do all of those rituals there. The priests come up to Elizabeth and say, what do you want to name him? She says, well, his name's going to be John. And they said, why would you name him John? There's no one in your family named John. It's really important in the ancient world to name your child something that is like strong in your family history. Name your child something that connects to a strong leader, like Aaron, for instance. Something like that. But instead, Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And Why would you do that? Well, let's just move on to Zechariah. So they say, Zechariah, what do you want to name him? And of course he can't talk, and they probably know that. And they're probably picking on him a little bit. But he asks for a writing tablet and writes on it, his name is John. And in that moment, in that act of obedience, his mouth is opened, and he can talk. And the first thing he does is sing this beautiful song. That's what I would do, too, if I could finally talk. Um, He sings this beautiful song, and that's starting in verse 68 of Luke 1. We're still on page 715, if you're looking. And let me read this for you. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So here Zechariah isn't talking about his son quite yet. He's talking to what his son is going to point towards, that salvation of Israel. Zechariah knows that what's coming is going to change everything. The one that his son is going to point to is going to change the way Israel works, change the way the universe works. And he knows that. And he sings this awesome song about salvation. And for him and for a lot of the Old Testament people, salvation was a real physical rescue from danger. 
So this wasn't necessarily salvation that we think of it quite yet, but instead they were thinking, I'm going to be rescued, safe from oppression. I'm going to be in my land, safe, be able to live my life without the worry of foreign people attacking us. We're going to have a king that will protect us. That's what salvation is. That's what we're looking forward to. And Zechariah knows something like that is coming, and it's going to change everything. He knows, and he sings about it. And then he turns to his son, who's eight years old, freshly named John, and he says in verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So there's that word again, peace. He says that John, his son, is going to point to the one who will guide our feet into the path of peace. This is a huge concept. There's a lot in there, too. I wish we could get deeper into it. So much good imagery and so many um, good phrasings in there. But when Zechariah says the path of peace, because he's a priest, he's probably thinking something a little bit different than just our absence of conflict. A little bit different than just our calmness, our comfort. Although that's probably in there, especially the salvation language and the safety language. But this idea of peace for Zechariah, who was a priest, kind of echoes back to the Old Testament. Way back in the book of Leviticus, there's five major offerings for the people of Israel, one of which is the peace offering. The peace offering, what you would do is you would, you would go on behalf of your family, you would go into the temple, participate in the sacrifice, you would bring your animal, work with the priest to offer that animal up to God. You would cut it up and separate it out the way that you're supposed to according to ritual. And then you would burn it. And the smoke would go up to God. It would be giving the physical piece of the animal up to God in a very spiritual, real, mysterious way. And then you would take some of that meat back to your family and you would share a meal over it. And all of that process would symbolize that you are at peace with God. You have done the proper steps necessary to know that you're at peace with God. The smoke went up, and you took the meat back home with you, ate it with your family in a really symbolic way of eating with God. And you would know that you are at peace with God. You would know where you stand with God. You'd know your status with God. So if we take this into that path of peace idea that Zechariah is talking about, this peace is much bigger than just absence of conflict. This peace is much bigger than just comfort than ease, than relief. This peace is a status with God. This peace is a standing with God. We can know that there is no tension between us. We can know that there's no um, war between us and God. We can know that there's peace between him and us. And this may sound like, oh yeah, that's such a biblical thing. I get that. But can you really wrap your mind around that? Like, God isn't mad at us. We can know where we stand with him. Some of the New Testament writers picked up on this too. 
Paul would often talk about the peace that comes from Christ. In the book of Ephesians, he says that the shed blood of Christ became peace for us. So through the blood of the cross, we have peace. Later in that same book in Ephesians, he said that Jesus himself is our peace. So Jesus is that absence of conflict. Jesus is that comfort and that rest and that relief. But he's also the one that completely encapsulates what it means to be at peace with God. Because of Jesus, we are at peace with God. We're reconciled to God. We sang a ton of songs this morning that had that idea in them. Peace, goodwill to men. Being reconciled to God. That's what peace is. It's not just comfort. It's not just rest or relief. But peace is that status of knowing where we stand with God. If you think back to last week, too, when Mitch talked about fear and fearing the gods, this is completely different than, than that kind of fear that the other cultures had because they couldn't know where they stood with God. They would do all these different rituals and sacrifices to try to appease the gods. But this God that sent his son to die for us, you can know that you have peace with him. The best part is it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent on Jesus. We know that we have peace with God because Jesus is our peace. So as we think about this path of peace idea that Zechariah attributes to his son, pointing to Jesus, I think this is really important for us this Christmas season. And you can take this, this peace idea to a huge, massive political scale if you wanted to. I'm not going to because I'm just the intern. But I think really where this impacts us the most is in our everyday interactions with people. The people that we see all the time. The people that we think about our interactions with before we fall asleep. The people that we don't look forward to seeing at work. This peace with God idea, the the fact that we know that we can have peace, calls us to be peacemakers. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you have your pew Bibles, that's page 822. Let me get there too. Colossians chapter 3. And Paul says in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. So we are called to this peace, not just to this peace with God, not just to this reconciliation between us and God, but we're called to peace with other people. We're called to be peaceable people, people that live that peace out. We're called to be peacemakers with other people. And really where this hits is those interactions that we see all the time. Maybe there's someone at work that you instantly can think of right now, because I know I have one, that you don't have peace with. A person that is constantly getting under your skin, or they think you're constantly getting under their skin, and there is not peace there. There's tension. There's war there. We're called to make peace there. Maybe there's someone at school that you just do not like being around. You purposefully avoid them at all costs. We're called to make peace with that person, too. 
Maybe there's someone in your family that you'll see this Christmas season that you don't normally see. Cultivate peace there as well. Maybe there's someone in your family that you're not going to see this Christmas season. We're called to make peace there as well. And this is exciting because we get to be a little bit creative. Sometimes peace just means calling them and talking to them and clearing the air. Sometimes peace means actually confronting them and talking with them. Establishing that peace. Being actively peacemakers. Sometimes that just means you have to start in your own heart. Start praying for them. Praying for peace in that situation. There's so many different ways that we can make peace with those people. And I'd encourage you to think of one person that you can make peace with this Christmas season. I'm not just saying to all of you. I'm saying that to myself as well. And that's terrifying to think about making peace with someone. So many things that could go wrong. So many things that could make us get hurt worse. And that's a real risk. That's real potential. That's a real fear to have. But if we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, we have to realize that we're called to that peace. We're called to make peace with other people. It's interesting, too, thinking back to um, Nora being born and how that really changed everything about our lives. All those fears and worries and expectations and excitement and longing and hopes and dreams all didn't happen at once. It wasn't this one sudden, oh, peace, perfect, Nora's here. I will tell you 100% there is not peace in our house most days. Nora is throwing things, climbing on things, jumping off of things, whining about something. We love her so much. But there is not always peace at our house. But Zechariah says that John will point people into the path of peace. So it's not just one instance of peace. Oh, I finally got it. I can just sit back and relax and rest now. But it's a path of peace. It's walking this path that is constantly covered in peace. It's about us being people that are peaceable. Peacemakers. This idea of walking in the Old Testament is really, really close to the heart of what it means to be a Jewish person. Really, in the Old Testament world, if you had to get anywhere, you had to walk there. And if you couldn't walk for some reason, you were useless. They had no need for you because you couldn't get anywhere. Walking is really this everyday thing that you always did to get where you needed. So when we think about this path of peace, it has to be every day. It has to be routine. And it's not just choosing every day to walk that path of peace. Path of peace. What did I just say? I don't even know. Walk that path of peace. But it's also built into those everyday things that we kind of just look over and try to get through. That's where peace is built, in those routines. If it helps you to think about walking in the Old Testament world, um, you can kind of attribute that to, to us driving. It's really the connection there. We drive all the time. Even if you don't have a car, you're probably driving or riding on something to get somewhere. That's how constant this walking, this path idea is. It's every day. It's everywhere. It's constant. It's always choosing to be the peaceable person, always choosing to make peace. And not just because it makes us look better or more righteous or more Christian, but because we have peace with God. And we're called to spread that peace. 
And I don't want to just assume that everyone here has chosen to take that step to have peace with God or to declare that peace is made between you and God. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to talk to one of us. There's so many people in this community that would love to talk to you about that. Because really believing that Jesus died for you is where that path of peace begins. He's that offering. He's that pleasing sacrifice that went up to God to make our peace for us. He became our peace, and we have to accept that. And if you have chosen that, if you have chosen to step into that path of peace, I encourage you to think of that one person and think of how you can invite them into that path of peace, how you can guide their feet into the path of peace, just like John did. And we're so close to Christmas. It's coming. It's a week and a half away, and it's going to be busy. It's going to go by so quickly. There's so many events, so many final projects to get through. It's going to happen so fast. But I encourage you to sit in that longing, sit in that expectation. Realize that we don't have to be afraid of God anymore. But also realize that we have peace with him. Take that peace, let it change your mind, let it change the way you look at the world. See the cords that you could trip over. See the picture frames that you could break on the ground. And choose to walk into that path of peace. Because it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you aren't mad at us. Thank you that we can know that we have peace with you. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. To become peace for us. We didn't deserve it. But we know that you loved us so much and you wanted us so much that you would give anything. We're thankful. Help us to allow that peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. Help us to realize that we're called to peace. Help us to live that peace out to the world around us. Help us to make peace, to be peaceable. To take those enemies that we know that are at the core of who we are, the the interactions that we, we have every day with people help us to make peace from those situations because you made peace with us. We love you so much, God. And we're excited to get to the Christmas story and celebrate you becoming human to buy us back. Help us to rest in those expectations and that longing, but also help us to know that eventually leads to the peace that we have with you. We pray for the children's service this morning, that it would go well, and we're excited to celebrate in that way. And we're just thankful that we can be a community here that is made of peace. Help us to keep choosing to walk into that path of peace. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace be with you.